I'm Jorge Salazar with the Texas Advanced Computing Center. Some scientists think there might be light at the end of the tunnel in the hunt for better semiconductor materials for solar cells and LEDs. That's according to an August 2017 study that used supercomputer simulations with graphics processing units to model nanocrystals of silicon. Solar cells have a problem with heat. Photovoltaics on solar panels lose some energy as heat when they convert sunlight to electricity. And the reverse holds true for LED lights, which convert electricity into light. Scientists call the heat loss in LEDs and solar cells non-radiative recombination, and they struggle to understand the basic physics of this heat loss, especially for materials with molecules of over 20 atoms. Joining us today on the podcast is Benjamin Levine, an associate professor in the Department of Chemistry at Michigan State University. Dr. Levine models the behavior caused by defects in materials, such as doping bulk silicon to transform it into semiconductors in transistors, LEDs, and solar cells. Levine has used over 975,000 compute hours on the Maverick supercomputer, a dedicated visualization and data analysis resource architected with 132 NVIDIA Tesla K40 Atlas GPUs for remote visualization and GPU computing to the national community. Exceed, the extreme science and engineering discovery environment funded by the National Science Foundation provided the allocation. Dr. Levine, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. What are the main findings of a study published in the Journal of Physical Chemistry Letters on optoelectronics in semiconductors? The main goal of our work there has been to try and understand a process in these semiconductors and semiconductor nanomaterials that's called non-radiative recombination. And so what non-radiative recombination is, is it's a fundamental physical process that takes energy that's been deposited in the electron somehow and converts it into heat. The reason this process is useful or is, is interesting, it's a fundamental interest. We'd really just like to understand the fundamental physics of this thing. But the other thing that perhaps is more interesting to a general audience is that these recombination processes limit the efficiency of devices for various purposes. For example, solar cells operate by uh, some semiconductor uh, out in the sun. It absorbs light that excites the electrons, deposits energy in the electrons. And that energy, uh, you want to remain in the electrons long enough for those electrons to do something useful, like light a light bulb or power a computer or whatever. The non-radiative recombination is a, a process that competes with those useful processes by converting that electronic energy into heat. And so uh, what we've been trying to do is use computer models, computational models, to understand how exactly that process happens and how it relates to the structure of the material so that we can inform people, you know, people who actually design materials, experimentalists and engineers, what are the structural features of the material that are resulting in undesirable behavior in these applications. And so the main results of our work so far have been to demonstrate that a particular feature of the material is known as a conical intersection. And a conical intersection is an idea that comes from molecular photochemistry, not material science. And in molecular photochemistry, what's been shown over the course of the last several decades is that these conical intersections are features that introduce pathways for non-radiative processes, converting electronic energy into heat. And so the really key contribution of our work has been to show that uh, we can understand these recombination processes by in materials also by looking at these conical intersections. And, and what we've been able to show is that the conical intersections could be associated with specific structural defects in the material, 
And so if the material has a defect, maybe there's a, an atom missing or there's something stuck to the surface, that defect could introduce a conical intersection, which results in very fast and very efficient non-radiative recombination. And uh, we've been able to show also that a lot of the intuition that's been developed in molecular photochemistry for where these conical intersections happen and how they behave works in material science also. So we've been able to show that actually sometimes, you know, we've done lots and lots of huge calculations, but one of the nice things that's come out of these calculations is that some of the time we can just look at the material, look at the structure and say, ah, I have an intuition for how this thing's going to behave. And I can predict even before I do the calculation uh, where the intersection is going to be, what the non-radiative recombination process is going to look like. And that lets us more quickly diagnose what's going on in the material and, and figure out how to make it better. Would you talk a little bit about how you're using computers to tackle this problem of finding these defects? What are some of the computational challenges you faced in studying these properties of the semiconductor nanomaterials? I mentioned that this conical intersection idea has been around in molecular photochemistry for a long time. And the reason it's never jumped into material science is that really that molecules are small and we could afford to do really highly accurate calculations to find these things in molecules 20 years ago, but we've never been able to do it in materials until recently. And so the real challenge here is system size. A molecule, when I say molecule, I mean something that maybe has 10 or 20 atoms. When I say material, in a nanomaterial, I mean something that has at least 50 atoms. Maybe it has 100 atoms, maybe it has 1,000 atoms. Going from that you know, 10 to 20 atom limit up to you know, 50, 100, 200 atoms has been the real computational challenge here. It sounds like we're just multiplying by 10 the size of the systems we can look at, but actually the calculations scale with the size of the system to some power. It's often four, or for some more accurate calculations, maybe it's six. And so making the system 10 times bigger actually requires us to perform maybe 10,000 times uh, more operations. It's really a, a big change in the size of our calculations. So we've addressed those using uh, graphics processing unit hardware. So graphics processing unit hardware I'm sure I don't need to tell you because you work at TAC, but I'll, <laughs> I'll say for the general audience, it's hardware that's designed for graphical applications, computer games, and other applications that involve uh, rendering three-dimensional graphics. And it turns out that those 3D applications involve lots of linear algebra, which is exactly the same math that's involved in our uh, quantum mechanical calculations, asking what are the electrons doing in the material. And so using graphics processing units, we've been able to accelerate our calculations by hundreds of times, which has allowed us to go from this molecular scale where we were limited before up to the, the nanomaterial size. And I should mention that large-scale resources like Maverick at TAC, for example, which have lots of GPUs, have been just wonderful for us. You really need three things to be able to pull this off. You need good theories, you need good computer hardware, and then you need facilities that have that hardware in sufficient quantity so that you can do the calculations that you want to do. I think it's fascinating that the technology that was developed for games and for, um, I guess, social graphic artists, that this technology has been recognized by scientists as something that is really useful for these really important problems of making better solar cells. Yeah, I, I think it's really great, too. This is actually something started when I was in graduate school. I was working on this more than 10 years ago. We were working with uh, PlayStation 2s at the time. And uh, we got quantum chemical calculations running on PlayStation 2s. And then it was just sort of proof of concept. We never did anything useful with them. But now the field has sort of exploded where you can do lots and lots of, you know, really advanced quantum mechanical calculations using these GPUs. And the companies, I should say, NVIDIA has been very supportive of this. They release technology that helps us do this sort of thing uh, better than we could do it before. 
For the benefit of people listening, a dumb question for you. <laughs> you know, how is Maverick different than a, a PlayStation 2? I mean, or a bunch of PlayStation 2s. Yeah, so it's better in a few ways. So back when we were working on PlayStation 2s, Sony had no intention that anybody would ever do science on a PlayStation 2. And so the, the hardware was really designed to just go one direction. You could easily pass data through the GPU to the screen, but it was really hard to do any computation and get information back. And uh, the documentation was also, and this is an important thing, <laughs> it, it sounds like a detail, but the documentation was really written for people who were doing graphics, not for people who wanted to do numerical computation. And so what's happened is uh, GPUs and NVIDIA really recognized that this was a market that they wanted to develop. And so they developed, A, the GPUs in such a way that you can uh, pass data back and forth to the GPU without going out to the screen just as easily as you can go out to the screen. And they really developed a nice interface called CUDA, uh, which has been around for you know, at least 10 years now, uh, which made it easy, <laughs> relatively speaking, easy to make these GPUs do general purpose computational tasks. And then a, a machine like Maverick is particularly useful because it brings a lot of the GPUs into one place. So we can sit down and we can say, man, we want to look at 100 different materials or, or we want to look at 100 different structures of the same material. And we're able to do that using a machine like Maverick, where just a desktop gaming machine has one GPU, we can do one calculation at the time. But that's what those sorts of large scale studies aren't possible. How does what you're doing with Maverick to find these conical intersections in these materials, how does this fit into the bigger science picture around discovering new materials with useful properties? Yeah. So to date, the main focus of our work, we've been doing this for about five years now. And so the main focus of our work to date has been sort of proof of concept, showing that, that these are calculations that we can do, that what we find is in good agreement with experiment, that it can give us some insights into experiments that we couldn't get before. But now we're actually really branching off to different materials, more complicated materials where less is known. And what we're in the process of showing is that we can actually predict the behavior of materials and their defects that aren't well understood. And we can predict how this non-radiative recombination process is going to show up in experiments before the experiments are done. And uh, we're working with experimentalists to make this happen. And the next step from there will be, okay, now we've shown that we can actually make real predictions can we do design in the computer? Can we say, we want our material to look like this in the computer and predict the properties in the computer and then uh, really go to build a device that has the properties that we want? That hasn't happened yet, but that's something that's on our radar now. I mean, that really sounds like the new frontier. I imagine um, a lot of different things that you and other scientists had never even dreamed of could suddenly you could be working on. That's right. I think you're seeing this not just in our work, but in, in lots of groups in material science and, and other areas also that uh, computers, not just computers, but computers, algorithms, facilities like TAC are getting to the point where, you know, the computation is not just subservient to experiment anymore. We're actually getting to the point where we're going to be making predictions that are going to be driving the experiments and driving the engineering process. And, and that's very exciting for someone who's been, you know, working towards that for a number of years. For people listening, is there anything that they can get excited about as non-scientists? Is there anything that might relate to them? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I, I hope a lot of what I said sort of relates to the non-scientist in that I think, you know, the non-scientist maybe doesn't keep up with what theoretical chemistry and theoretical physics looks like. But it's really we're entering a new phase now where we have the theories and the computer power to actually predict things from first principles and then go into the lab and do the engineering process starting from 
things that we've learned from computer simulations. And I think that's going to change the way materials for solar cells, say for light emitting diodes, other materials or other uh, applications where semiconductors are important. I think it's going to really drive how that process happens. What's next for your research? There's a couple of drives right now. One of them is what I already mentioned, which is trying to take our material science research and push it, you know, work more closely with experimentalists to make predictions and test those predictions to show that our theory is really working and to show that we can really uh, be a driver for the engineering process the way I'm claiming I think we can. The other thing that's going on right now that actually there's two other things going on in our group that are, are related to our graphics processing unit work that are, I think, interesting. One is we've been running some calculations where we use a, a sort of simulated evolution, a genetic algorithm it's called, where, where you simulate the evolution process and we're actually evolving materials that have the property that we're looking for one generation after the other. Maybe we have a pool of 20 different molecules and we predict the properties of those molecules and then we maybe pick the, you know, randomly pick some less than 10 of them that have desirable properties and we modify them in some way. We mutate them or we in some chemical sense, breed them with one another to create new molecules and test those. And this all happens automatically in the computer. A lot of this is actually done on Maverick also. And we end up with new molecules that nobody's ever looked at the lab before, but that we think they should look at in the lab. So automated design processes is, is really already started. The other thing that we're doing that's interesting is, you know, I'm a chemist by training. I'm actually not a material scientist. And we're taking some of this back to uh, more traditional chemistry, we're, we're interested in some atmospheric chemistry problems where you don't have hundreds of atoms, you just have two atoms again. You have a tiny little molecule, but you have something interesting going on. And uh, the, the reason our GPUs are useful here is because in the upper atmosphere, there's lots of extra energy. You have lots of UV light and X-rays and gamma rays that are just blowing molecules apart, blowing electrons off of molecules. And uh, what the GPUs allow us to do here is not to look at bigger systems, but to look at systems with higher energies. And so we're able to look at chemistry where maybe you have a free electron, which is something that has just a tremendous amount of energy, much more energy than an excited electron in a semiconductor. And we're able to see how that free electron affects the chemistry. And this is something we're doing in, with some funding from the Air Force who are interested in, of course, understanding how chemistry happens in the upper atmosphere. So those are just a couple of the directions where we're going uh, uh, right now. What's the most important thing you want the public to know about your study of optoelectronics and semiconductors? Yeah, so the take-home message here, I think, is that in our work and actually in the, the work of others who work in this area, uh, we're getting to the point where we have the theories, the computer hardware, and the facilities that we need to really make predictions before experiments even happen. And so I think this is a direction that really science as a whole is going. So it's not really specific to our work. I think science as a whole is moving in this direction where theory and computation are going to be more in the driver's seat than they ever have before. And I think that's really exciting. Dr. Levine, thank you for speaking with us. Yeah, thank you very much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Benjamin Levine of Michigan State University. For the Texas Advanced Computing Center, I'm Jorge Salazar. <laughs>